Hello and welcome to ACBC's China Path podcast, where we delve deep into the issues and opportunities facing Australian businesses looking to become more deeply engaged with China. I'm James Scullin from the Australia-China Business Council. In light of the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement and the growing integration between Australia and China, the mission of this podcast is to discuss and provide information on the Australia-China relationship by giving experts the chance to impart their knowledge to listeners who either already do business with China or those with an interest doing so in the future. Each fortnight, we'll be coming to you with a new episode of the China Path podcast on a range of issues such as accessing chapter, the China-Australia Free Trade Agreement, using e-commerce to sell online to China, advice and trade updates to exporters, business opportunities in the services sectors of education, health, aged care, tourism and finance, a China checklist for businesses looking to take their first steps to China, business case studies, and a whole lot more. We'd also like to hear about any issues you would like us to cover, so please drop by the podcast homepage at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts to register your requests. Our first episode today is with Mr. John Brumby, a political veteran and former Premier of Victoria. Since retiring from politics, John has accepted a number of board positions with Huawei, the Motor Trades Association of Australia, the Fred Hollows Foundation, as well as a joint appointment to both Melbourne and Monash Universities as a Vice-Chancellor's Professional Fellow. John joins us today as the National President of the Australia-China Business Council. In our discussion, we look at the big picture of the Australia-China relationship and tackle a range of topics from chapter, inbound investment, sports diplomacy, Chinese tourism into Australia, China's One Belt, One Road policy, as well as John's interaction with Chinese President Xi Jinping when he visited Victoria while John was Premier. So without any further ado, here is ACBC National President, John Brumby. So it's with a great pleasure that I kick off our first interview with ACBC President John Brumby. Thanks a lot for joining us today, John. Uh, my pleasure, James, and, and great to be here as uh, National President of the Australia-China Business Council. I'd like to start off by getting a big picture analysis on where the Australia-China relationship is in uh, 2017. Um, the Australia-China relationships developed rapidly over the last two decades. Uh, what do you see as being some of the major accomplishments in that time? Well, I think it's been a you know an, an enormously um, successful period. Uh, if you go back 20 years ago, um, Australia, uh, China wasn't Australia's largest single trading partner. Uh, it is now true of Australia. I think in I think something like nine separate areas: um, exports, education, tourism, largest trading partner, uh, largest importer. And so it's been a period of extraordinary growth, extraordinary growth in China, but mm. extraordinary growth in the Australia-China relationship. Uh, we've seen an increased number of uh, Australian prime ministerial visits uh, to China. That's been great. Uh, we've seen, of course, the visits from uh, firstly then Vice President Xi Jinping, who 
managed to visit most of the Australian states, including Melbourne, of course, when I was uh, Premier here. And then, of course, his visit again as President, his address to the Parliament. Uh, we've seen the recent visit of Premier Li Keqiang. Uh, we've seen a huge growth in the number of Chinese visitors to Australia, Chinese tourists to Australia, a huge growth in the number of direct flights into Melbourne, mm. Sydney, Brisbane, Perth, Adelaide, you name it. Uh, and, of course, we've seen chapter. Mm. You know, so if you put all of that together, you couldn't have written um, a more exciting and more positive two decades of growth in business, in the movement of people and in friendship between Australia and China. So, uh, you know, it's, it's, it's a tick. Uh, the challenge, of course, is how we take the relationship mm. already on a very high level to the next level. So you mentioned chapter and, uh, you know, just recently it's clocked over to um, a year and a half since the agreement was signed with China. How significant do you find it to be? So Australia is said to be the most developed country to have such an agreement with China. How significant do you see chapter to be? And are Australian businesses taking advantage of that opportunity? Well, I think chapter. You know, we were we were great supporters of chapter, uh, and you know there was there was de- there was a bit of debate about chapter at the time, and and there was a bit of political debate. Uh, we never wavered in our support for it because we believe that for Australia, the Chinese market is so huge, so immense, so rapidly growing that getting uh, essentially tariff-free. Uh, access to that market is a great opportunity for Australians and will generate jobs and opportunity and prosperity for Australia. Uh, you're seeing some of the results of that. Uh, you know, whether you look at cherries, whether you look at wine, whether you look at meat, whether you look at stone fruit, particularly in the the agricultural and agribusiness area, we've seen you know measurable increases in exports to China since that time. Uh, I think the services sector. Uh, you know, in the health area, some of these things are a little slower, a little more complex, mm. but I think we're seeing benefits there as well. Uh, I think more generally, James, I'm certainly one of those people who thinks that, you know, post-resources boom in Australia, the free trade agreements that were negotiated uh, by uh, Trade Minister Rob, uh, Japan, South Korea mm. uh, and China, in terms of creating economic opportunities for Australia... The, you know, the single most important initiative, I think, that a government could take. So we welcome that and certainly we're seeing the benefits of it in trade with China at the moment. When it comes to services, China's economy is transitioning to a more consumption-driven economy. It will need services to help adapt. Is Australia able to deliver the types of services that China demands? Well, I think you're absolutely right about that uh, transition that's occurring in the Chinese economy. And, and really, that's the big the big story. Uh, it's not to say that in China there's not still huge investment in infrastructure, you know, in roads and airports and electricity and water and sewage and all of those things. Uh, but this shift to consumption and services is really the story of the Chinese economy. Mm. I think, you know, the last figures I saw, consumption as a share of GDP in China is, is still in the 30s. Um, but if you look at countries like uh, the United States or Europe or Australia, consumption is more than 50% of GDP. Mm. So as this shifts, the demand we're going to see for services is just going to continue to grow. So again, Australia is well regarded. Uh, we've got um, professional services, whether they're in uh, health services or financial services, 
uh, building and construction architectural services, which are highly regarded. Uh, and so I think, you know, this is, this is a great opportunity for us in the market. Uh, we're seeing many companies take advantage of this opportunity now. Uh, but again, it's a more complex area. Mm. Um, there are more uh, regulatory and non-trade barriers, uh, non-tariff barriers, sorry, often in this space. So I, I think, you know, we're highly regarded, very prospective, but it can be quite a challenging space. Mm. So, so Australia certainly has quite a clean, green and, and safe image um, in China when you know Australia's exporting products there. Um, do you see Australia's goal as trying to diversify its brand a little bit and trying to be a more sophisticated service provider than, than just having that clean and green image? Well, I think the clean and green image is, is a really important one. I mean, there's much mm. more to Australia than that. But when you look at the research of how Chinese tourists, Chinese consumers see Australia, um, you look at the success of companies like Swiss or Blackmores, um, much of that is built around product integrity and quality. Um, and the reason Chinese consumers, you know, prefer to buy their vitamins from a chemist shop in Australia rather than a chemist shop in, say, Beijing, mm. is because in Australia they believe it's got the labelling and the quality and the product integrity that mm. can be relied upon and guaranteed. Uh, I saw some figures the other day. I'm doing a, a speech uh, on uh, agriculture in the next couple of weeks, big speech on opportunities in China. Yep. But um, uh, this was work which has, I think, come out of one of the federal government agencies. But this demand from China and more generally globally for clean, green, often organic food, mm. it's just growing so rapidly. And, you know, the story of China is a middle class that's growing by 25 million people each year. So they've got a middle class that's adding more people each year than the whole of the Australian population. And that middle class is no different to the middle class in Australia or the US or Europe. Mm. The middle class that wants the best for themselves, the best for their children to lead good, happy, healthy lives. So um, often they'll look for the cleanest and greenest or the organic product and the beauty about Australia is we're very successful at growing, you know, the bulk commodities like wheat and barley, uh, but we're also very successful in the niche areas of organic production as well. And so there's going to be demand for both types of products and we're uniquely placed to provide that, that uh, product. 2017 is also quite a, a momentous year in terms of Australian sport in China, where the first AFL game was held in Shanghai for points um, earlier in the year. And as Premier of Victoria, you took uh, the current Chinese President Xi Jinping to a game at, I believe, uh, it was at Etihad, uh, Carlton Fremantle, is that it correct? Was it was 2009. It was, uh, oh, 2009, right. Yes, yeah, so it was, um, I think it was 2009. It was Carlton, uh, Xi Jinping, of course, was then Vice President. Yeah. Um, and uh, was a yeah Carlton was playing so um, uh, that's probably why he left at half time. Right. No, <laughs> no, you'd expect that from a Collingwood supporter. Uh, it was a good game and he really enjoyed it. But uh, he was keen to have a look at it because you know sport is growing yeah. and and sport is growing rapidly in China. Uh, and again, as China uh, grows, as the population becomes uh, wealthier, as their dietary habits change, as their work patterns change. They've got similar problems to the ones, again, we've got. Mm. Uh, so, you know, obesity and diabetes. So sport is important from a health perspective, uh, 
also important from a national pride perspective. Sure. So uh, the AFL game, very successful. The recent game in Shanghai, uh, Port Adelaide versus the Gold Coast Suns, yep. very successful. Um, tennis, you know, um, the Australian Open tennis, there are tens of millions of consumers in China that watch that live. Basketball, the National Basketball League uh, that's been set up here, again, very popular uh, in China. Uh, when the Asian World Cup of soccer was on a couple of years ago, when mm. China played Australia in Brisbane, I think there were 40 million yeah. television viewers back in China. Mm. So the sport thing is so big. And Australia-China Business Council, we've held a number of big forums and events in relation to sport. Uh, we think sport's important. It's important in an economic sense. But sports diplomacy, building mm. friendships, building relationships uh, is really crucial mm. as well. And it's a great vehicle to do that. And, you know, that's what I think Xi Jinping uh, saw in it. So what did you make of President Xi and your interactions with him? Oh, I thought he was he was tremendous. He uh, So he was there on a Saturday. Uh, he was, uh, you know, at that stage he was already earmarked to be the next president. Yep. Uh, you know, so he's a busy person. Uh, he spent over an hour with me and ten of my cabinet members at the time, a very frank discussion about the world, about climate change, about congestion in cities, about air quality, right. about things like sport, okay. about innovation, a very wide-ranging and frank discussion. And, uh, you know, I came away so impressed mm. with his knowledge of global issues and global events and his views about the path forward for, for China. The, the Chinese diaspora has been part of Australians for the gold rush of the 1850s. Today, there are approximately 1.2 um, million Chinese people who live in Australia or who have migrated to Australia. Um, additionally, Chinese student and tourist numbers are soaring. What is it about Australia that attracts them? So we've talked about you know Australia's clean and green image. What else brings these students and tourists coming back to Australia? Well, for the students, it's the quality, the perceived quality of our education system, the reputation of our universities. Uh, and for the parents who are usually paying the fees for those students, again, it's because our cities are very livable, very high quality of life, uh, generally uh, very safe uh, places, and um, uh, you're getting a, a, a great education. Uh, and it's interesting, we released a report last year on this, which we'd done in partnership with LEK. Mm. And the uh, it, uh, they surveyed a 1,000 um, tourists, who'd, Chinese tourists who'd been to Australia, uh, on their impressions. Their impressions were very positive. So it's all of those things I mentioned, air, air quality in particular, you know, so, so the great quality of life we enjoy. And typically a Chinese tourist will go back to China positive impression, uh, they'll be impressed by our education institutions, they'll be impressed by our cities, they'll become interested in real estate, perhaps purchasing real estate, uh, they'll be interested in coming back as a tourist again in the future, and perhaps in many ways, just as importantly, when they go back to China, they'll have an eye out to buy Australian-produced goods mm. and services because they believe they're high quality. Mm. So, you know, having said all of that, um, there are 100 million Chinese travelled overseas last year. They've now knocked off Germany as the most uh, travelled country in the world. Uh, 
a little bit misleading, that stat, because it includes travel to Macau. Okay. But even taking that out, you know, they're right up now in the, in the top one or top two. Uh, but we only get 1%. Okay, right? yeah. 1%. So there's 100 million travel, we get a million. Yeah. So really, again, the report we did showed potentially very rapid growth in tourism numbers going forward. We're seeing that with growth at 19, 25% per annum. We're seeing that with now six direct flights into Australia uh, from mainland China. And I think the big challenge for Australia is to make sure that we've got the quality experiences with the right service levels at the right price and the right, again, infrastructure at the entry points to Australia through our airports. The Chinese tourists themselves are adapting quite rapidly. I think in the past, many Chinese people that would have come to Australia would have come in a large tour group, but I think now we're seeing more and more independent travellers that have you know diversified tastes, that have their own and, unique and, things they're looking and for. And we saw that with the same as the Japanese story yeah, 25 definitely. years ago, group tours and then more independent travel and then more repeat independent travel, and mm. we're seeing that. And by the way, the, 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 the expenditure per head of the Chinese is higher than any other tourist group to Australia. Oh, so right. they're great tourists, um, very easy to get along with, very polite, very respectful, very well behaved. They spend lots of money and, um, you know, it's a great economic opportunity for Australia. So coming back to that transition of the Chinese economy from one being export and manufacturing driven to, to one more consumption led, people say that, you know, China is experiencing a, a slowdown and that this could have an effect on the Australian economy. I know you wrote something for the Australian on that. Um, do you think this China slowdown is something for Australia to worry about? Well, I think it's a, it's a much, much overused word mm. and over the last year I've been amused at you know amused in a sense uh, at the number of stories in um, from analysts and experts talking about the slowdown in China and the end of the world's coming and the Chinese economy is going to crash and the bubble's going to burst and the slowdown is going to be catastrophic reality is China has never failed, you know, whatever people think of China, China's never failed to achieve its objectives under its five-year plan. Mm. Their five-year plan going forward has an average economic growth of 6.5%. Indeed, to date, in their history of modern five-year plans, they've always um, under-promised and over-delivered. Mm. And in the last year, in fact, they've grown at 6.9%. So you're talking about an economy that in purchasing parity terms is now the largest economy in the world uh, in, in purchasing power terms, uh, and it's growing at 6.9%. So China's now accounting for 40% of all, more than 40% actually, of all global economic growth. Mm. Mm -hmm. Like it's extraordinary. So yes, it's not 12% or yeah. 13% as it was a decade ago, but then the Chinese economy, the base of the economy, is two to three times larger yeah. than it was a decade ago. So each percentage point of growth today is worth two and a half percentage points a decade ago. Right, yeah. So, you know, these are extraordinary growth numbers and um, uh, if China can keep growing with a six in front of it for the next five years or even the next decade, mm. the world will be a happy place. Aside from your role as ACBC president, you also sit on the board of Huawei. Um, and speaking of innovation, China annually invests approximately $200 billion each year into its innovation industry. 
Online sales in China contribute 18% of total retail in China, whereas the USA would only claim 8%, while mobile payments in China are 50 times higher than in the USA at 5.5 trillion. How is Chinese innovation and digitalization relevant for Australia? Well, um, you know, in a lot of areas now, uh, the fact of the matter is that, you know, China's ahead of Australia in, mm. in uh, technological innovation. So whether it's the... Um, you know, the payment systems through the phone, uh, whether it's the use of mobile um, technology, uh, uh, whether it's R&D expenditure generally, um, some of the, the um, digital health areas. Mm. You know, when I was there in China last year for Australia Week in China at Hangzhou, uh, the presentations there on digital health, uh, you know, they're extremely advanced. Uh, you know, you need to... Uh, it, it's important, and again, to understand um, the driving economic policy and the five-year plans in China. You know, the, the, the challenge for most countries that have achieved what China has is they hit what's called the middle-income trap. So you grow off the back of low-cost labour and then you hit $10,000 per head US income per head and... Bingo, you can't grow anymore because you're no longer um, competitive. You've mm. lost that competitive advantage and you've soaked up all the low-cost jobs around the world. So China's very aware of that. And if you look at speeches by the president and by Li Keqiang, uh, they've said, you know, China's got no intention of being um, stuck in the middle-income trap. And the only way through the middle-income trap is to invest in innovation and technology. So McKinsey's, for example, would say that by 2020, China will be the biggest investor in the world in R&D. Okay. And, and a lot of people hear that and they say, that can't be right, they can't knock off the United States, that's impossible. Mm. But companies like Huawei, you know, I sit on the Australian board of Huawei, uh, we're a very big company with um, you know, gl huge global sales, but last year we spent $12 billion US on R&D around the world. Mm. It's not all in China, you know, a lot of it's in China, but we spend a lot in Canada, a lot in Europe, a lot in Britain, some here in Australia, mm. 12 billion mm. US in R&D. That's more than, that's half as much as what Australia does in a whole year, right. private and public combined. Yep. So you've got a whole lot of these huge companies in China that are investing heavily in, in R&D. And again, a good example with Huawei, you know, the, the recent phones we've bought out, the P9... Uh, the, the P10 and the Mate 9, you know, Huawei invented, with, did the deal with Leica, with the Leica camera and the Leica technology, uh, renowned German company, mm. high-quality photographs. Now every other phone company, you know, around the world, including Apple, mm. including Apple, is copying what Huawei has done. Okay. And it's a good example about innovation by Chinese companies and they've got no intention of being caught in this middle-income trap. And so they're going to be big players in R&D. Another landmark of 2017 has uh, been when China launched its Belt and Road Initiative to revive the ancient Silk Road trade route. With the Chinese central government investing $1.3 in various infrastructure projects across Asia and Africa, uh, is there a role for Australia to play in Belt and Road? Well, I, th I think there's a role. And, uh, you know, at the end of the day, this will be a matter for Australian companies and the Australian government. Mm. Uh, but I think there's two... There's two um, ways that Australia can benefit from Belt and Road. Uh, the first is, is what I'd say is indirectly. So for projects 
in our region. So it, it might be the port, you know, that's under construction at Colombo, for example, in Sri Lanka or, or other projects in our region. I think Australian companies, Australian professionals, engineering consultants, architects, uh, financial advisors, mm. experts in PPPs, Australian, again, Australian expertise and companies are well regarded and so they can they can participate and benefit from those um, regional and global projects that's what i'd describe as the indirect benefits mm. uh, but i think you know in the medium term there's a chance for australia to be the site of um, a belt and road project most likely if it was a hard infrastructure project uh, something in northern australia uh and if that were the case, then, you know, Australian companies and Australians would benefit directly mm. uh, through particularly construction, involvement in the construction okay. side and all the jobs and the multiplier effect that, that came through that. So I'm a big fan of Belton Road. I see it really as a, you know, it's a, it's a, um, a Chinese uh, vision for more investment and freer trade mm. throughout the region, but more generally globally, and that's a positive thing. Australian uh, governments of all political persuasions, uh, you know, have always supported freer trade, and I think that's the end objective mm. of this, so I think it's a positive thing. There's so much debate about foreign investment in Australia, and particularly at the moment we're hearing a lot about Chinese investment. Why is the role of foreign direct investment in Australia so controversial? I've been around a few years, and I, you know, I can remember back in... My days at Melbourne University in the 70s, uh, you know, the time of the Vietnam War, there was uh, a lot of opposition to American investment in mm. Australia. You know, it was, was, was pretty high, particularly in the food industry. Mm. Uh, there was a lot of uh, opposition to that. Um, later that decade and into the 80s, we saw Japanese investment pick up and there was a bit of antagonism towards Japanese investment. Mm. And, you know, more recently you've seen an increase of a very low base, I might say, of Chinese investment. And you're seeing in some areas a bit of, you know, antagonism and a bit of debate about that. Mm. So I guess, that, you know, that's the first point. I don't see it as anti-Chinese per se. Mm. Uh, it's always been the case in Australia that there's been some hesitancy about overseas investment. Um, I think, you know, the story that many Australians perhaps don't understand is that you know, we're a very big nation with a small population and we've always needed and will always need foreign direct investment mm. to develop our assets and mm. create jobs. Mm. And people say, oh, why is that? Why can't we just do it ourselves? Mm. We can't do it ourselves because our savings base just isn't enough. And even if we were better savers, it still wouldn't produce a pool of savings that's large enough for all the investment that we'd want to see in Australia. So we're always going to need foreign direct investment. Um, at the moment, the biggest investors by far in Australia are the Americans, mm. then, you know, the Japanese and the Germans and the Koreans and the Dutch and the British. Chinese investment uh, as a share of the total is still under 3%. It's 2.7%. Mm. It's increased significantly in the last two years, but it's still very, very low. Uh, so I think we're going to see more Chinese investment in Australia. Uh, I think that's a good thing. We're seeing it particularly in the tourism industry where they're building hotels and accommodation and tourist attractions. That's a good thing. It's going to generate a lot of jobs 
for Australians. Mm. And, you know, we need to be blunt about it. Um, Australia, uh, while our unemployment rate isn't too bad, our underemployment rate is much worse than the United States, um, worse than many other developed countries around the world now. And the most important thing, you know, for families is jobs. And so foreign direct investment unquestionably, unarguably generates jobs for mm. Australians. And so, you know, at Australia-China Business Council, we're strong supporters of foreign direct investment. More generally, I think that often in Australia we can simplify China. China has, you know, such a complex history, such a complex political structure. Its geography is complex. Each part in, of, of China is different to the other. How can Australia just generally better understand China and understand it for the complex country that it is? Well, I think it's you know it's hard to it's hard for people to get their head around China. I think unless you go there, mm. and that's because what's occurred in China since the opening up Deng Xiaoping in '78 is unprecedented, like in every sense of the word yep. in global history. Um, you know, ch just in an economic sense, China's economy has just kept doubling every seven to ten years and then doubled again and doubled again and doubled again and doubled again. And after the Industrial Revolution, it took Britain uh, 41 years to double real GDP per head. Mm. You know, and China's been doing it every seven. Yeah. And so this is unprecedented in global history. It's unprecedented that one country... Um, would be the major trading partner of 126 other countries yep. in the world. So the China phenomena is is extraordinary. Uh, although we would say that compared with the freedoms that we enjoy in Australia, uh, China's still got a long way to go. That's true. But if you look at the changes in the last 40 years the increased freedoms, the liberties that Chinese have experienced. You know, 40 years ago, the ch you know, if you wanted to get married, you had to have the permission of the state. Mm. Where you worked was you had to have the permission of the state. Mm. If you went to university, you went with the permission of the state and you were sent to... You know, so there have been an extraordinary number of freedoms mm. and liberties in the last 40 years. Many people would say, well, it's not fast enough and there's more to go. There's certainly more to go. But... You know, China is a, is a, has gone through such profound change. Mm. And, you know, China... There's this thing in China, the China dream, you know, and, and they see themselves as a modern and sophisticated, um, developed economy uh, playing a significant role in the world. And the aspirations for their families are no different to the aspirations that we've got for our families, which is for a better, happier and healthy life. So, so you know, but it, it's a rapidly changing society and economy and as I say we remarked on on innovation uh, and uh, it's now becoming a very innovative uh, country I, I must say um, uh, you know I visit China I think last year I was over there four times five times mm. uh, I've only been a couple of times this year uh, often I have, wear a different hat sometimes my Huawei hat sometimes my Ch Australia China Business Council hat uh, I've had a couple of visits to China. I'm the national president of the Fred Hollows Foundation. And we had a beautiful trip last year to uh, Xintang uh, County, which is uh, a little county in Hebei province near about four hours' drive from Beijing, where we launched a big eye health program, um, screening program, picked up 
dozens of older Chinese with uh, cataracts who, mm. are, who are blind and now um, they've been treated and they've got the gift of sight mm. again. So every time I go back to China, it's, you know, it's, I'm excited about it. It's often with a different purpose. Uh, you know, it's a big country, a broad country, a diverse country, and, and you know, it's, it's um, uh, a country which is just so important and has such a long-standing friendship with Australia. Mm, fantastic. Well, yeah, thanks a lot for your time today. John Brumby, Australia China Business Council National President. Terrific. Thank you, James. My sincere thanks to John for making the time to come and share his insights on the Australia-China relationship and where it's at in 2017. I can also add that John had little to no notes during our interview and his ability to reel off statistics on China demonstrates his breadth of knowledge on the matter. During our talk, he mentioned a few ACBC reports. Those were Deloitte Access Economics report on the benefits of Chinese investment in Australia and LEK study on how the tourism boom is transforming Australia. Both those studies will be available on this episode page of the podcast that you can find at www.acbc.com.au forward slash podcasts. There you can also subscribe to any future episodes and get in touch with us on any China areas you'd like to hear from us. We'd also like to thank the Australian Trade and Investment Commission for their support of the China Path podcast. Thanks a lot for listening and we'll see you next episode. Zai Jian. <laughs>